Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Good morning. My name is Michael Caduce. I'm joined today by Jeff Rollman and Dave Page as we dive into this month's podcast for the Pre-Hospital Care Research Foreman. This is our June 2023 edition, and we'll be reviewing transitioning from direct to video laryngoscopy during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's associated with a higher endotracheal intubation success rate. This discussion, as always, is paired with an article written by Dr. Tony Fernandez and myself in EMS World called Journal Watch. We encourage listeners to check out the article on emsworld.com under the category of education and training. Thank you all for joining us today. As we begin, we want to remind our listeners that you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments, and we'll be incorporating those into the conversation as we go. I'm thrilled to have this panelist with these panelists with us here today as we dive into a discussion that is incredibly relevant. This study really demonstrates to us some evidence-based practice and gives us some guidance as we move forward on what may what an implementation of video laryngoscopy may mean for your service and certainly what it meant for this service. This article was published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care in March 2023, and here in just a minute, we'll share it in the chat so you too can join in on the discussion and review the article. The authors note several important findings in their introduction, and I think the biggest takeaway before reading this paper is there's a lot of conversation, discussion, maybe even argument on what is the best way to intubate a patient. Does video laryngoscopy offer a benefit that direct laryngoscopy doesn't? There's mixed results in the community of EMS in the hospital and in the pre-hospital setting. We really don't know if one provides a substantial benefit to the patients. There's literature that goes both directions. This study dived in to find exactly that. I think we do want to set some parameters as we start having some conversation about this article. This article looked at a time period in research during the COVID-19 pandemic. It really offered us a different mindset. If you think back to this study period, which was 2019, 2020, and the beginning of 2021, there was a lot of information out there, some of it very accurate and research-based, and some of it not so much on, was there a concern for us as healthcare providers and the aerosolization or the airway procedures that can produce aerosolization of, of the COVID-19 virus? So this study actually took that into account, which I'm thrilled to bring to everyone, because I think a lot of times in research, especially right now, there's a bit of fear of looking at COVID data. It changed a lot of our population. So when we look at cohort studies like this one, we really have to ask ourselves, was something different in the world during the COVID-19 pandemic? And certainly that's a resounding yes. There were a lot of things that had changed the way we normally operated. So um, trying to take that into account in research is, is some somewhat dangerous or you know, somewhat difficult right now, or there's some fear around really diving into looking at this, this, this set of data, um, but really happy that the, these authors dove in to take a look at it. Again, a couple, uh, we're going to use the DL and VL um, uh, abbreviations as we talk about it, direct laryngoscopy, that's with a laryngoscope, video laryngoscopy for this study was a GlideScope, certainly lots of other devices that are out there. And then there's lots of research out there, probably one of the 
top Paramount research articles that was published last year in January of 2022 was the Airway Compendium. Uh, we've got a link on the screen and we'll put a link in the chat as well, but this Airway Compendium really set the standard for all kinds of airway practice, everything from back valve mask ventilations um, to medication assisted intubation to training and QI on airway management. So I think really, really important as we recognize what resources are already out there as well. I want to invite Jeff Dave and Dr. Bill Toon to the discussion, see if what their thoughts are on the introduction for this article, what some of their um, sort of setting the foundation comments would be as we dive into this article. I think it's a, a very timely topic and um, I'm busy uh, getting links up into the chat area for all of you who may not have uh, previously tuned into some of the stuff we've done around video laryngoscopy. There's um, a wonderful podcast. We, we've been doing this for a while. It's a kind of a interesting topic to keep bringing back, but um, the, there's a systematic review and meta-analyses that just published May, 2023. And um, uh, that is, uh, the link is now in the chat area. Uh, as well as we have a podcast that uh, Henry Wang and Jeff Jarvis did uh, five years ago uh, with a study that uh, Jarvis, Dr. Jarvis had published regarding uh, the uh, very, he's a big advocate. So uh, it was a very positive article around uh, the use of video laryngoscopy and its improvement in endotracheal intubation success rates. Uh, that is an audio only podcast that's on SoundCloud. So I'm going to share those and uh, uh, I think direct folks to uh, get a full picture of this. I also uh, am uh, sorry that the Mayo Clinic group that did this study wasn't able to join us today. Normally we have authors on and uh, they're obviously a high performance EMS system that has uh, multi-state uh, uh, different uh, operations. And their their work around this is, I think, very very good. So I'm I'm just thrilled that we're going to be discussing the topic today. Thanks, Dave. I, I agree. It seems like there's always discussion around VL versus DL. Which one's better? Does one provide a benefit to a patient? Thrilled that a high performing large ALS response service took upon this question. Um, Jeff, any thoughts before we dive into the paper? Sure. Thank you, Michael and Dave. Yeah, this paper, I think, is really interesting to see these authors. They really dove into this topic, and they rapidly implemented a protocol and device without a lot of time, without a, a lot of lead time. And I know there are probably many different EMS agencies out there that are thinking, okay, this there's increasing evidence towards VL. Uh, there's still not necessarily as definitive evidence in the pre-hospital setting as compared to in-hospital, but what should our protocols look like? How should we do this? What sort of outcomes should we track and measure? And here, Mayo Clinic did all of that, and they provided all their data. They also showed us all their guidelines and protocols. So I definitely want to commend their EMS system and the study authors for showing all this and for being so transparent. So we can definitely learn from them since there are many EMS agencies that are probably going to look at this and try to see how they can use their findings to um, improve their airway management practices. I think that's a great transition to our methods, Jeff. And since you're doing the methods, <laughs> I'll turn it over to you and just add that um, they did provide us all this data, but they also provided us their specific protocols for intubation. And again, I, I oftentimes in EMS, I feel like we're on islands where we have to invent the wheel ourselves you've got a great airway protocol attached to this study that they've included as one of the um, appendices. And I just think what a great opportunity to dive into it. And again, any any agency that's willing to put their stuff out there for the greater good, um, we applaud them. And sometimes we're a little bit worrisome to do that for what feedback we might get. So I'm glad that they were able to do that. And I'll turn it over to you for the methods. Thank you. Yeah, again, all this information is right there in the paper. And then in that appendix, it's not even a separate download. It's all the way at the end of the PDF. So very nice and easy to find. So as far as talking about this setting, since we all know when you've seen one EMS system, you've seen only one EMS system. So how does this one work? This is our friends at the Mayo Clinic. 
they have a ambulance service um, that is in both Wisconsin and Minnesota. So it covers a pretty large geographic area. It covers urban settings um, right around the Mayo Clinic, the main Mayo Clinic Hospital, for example, as well as suburban and rural settings as well. So it covers a really large geographic area uh, and they respond to about 100,000 EMS calls per year. They do respond to some interfacility transfers. So about three quarters of these, about 75,000 of them are 911 emergency calls. And then that averages to about 500 intubations per year across their service. They have um, about 370 ALS providers. So most of these are paramedics. They have about 330 paramedics and then 40 nurses. Most of their ALS transports are ground ambulance, but they also do have some air ambulance, some critical care, and those fixed and rotor wing are generally nurse paramedic teams, and those are considered critical care. Whereas on the ground, um, they sometimes have ground critical care, but most of their ground ambulance is generally a paramedic with another paramedic or a paramedic and an EMT. And when we talk about ALS versus critical care in this article, as the authors discuss their ALS, their standard ALS is considered ground ambulance, again, with a paramedic and an EMT or two paramedics, and their critical care is um, one of those uh, fixed rotor wing or ground and the nurse paramedic pair or sometimes nurse nurse pair. Um, and then as far as their training, since that's something that I think we definitely can't gloss over, they didn't just throw out all these video laryngoscopes overnight without any training. They actually had prior to this study, prior to introducing the video laryngoscope, they have annual training, which does include a cadaver lab, um, even with their DL. And then they had um, uh, three-hour classroom training, which also included um, both didactic training and then also practicing with the mannequin. And then that's in addition to, again, their annual training. So they do get initial training, hands-on, uh, both mannequins and cadavers. The critical care team does get some additional training. They also get clinical time in a operating room setting, which is something that, that their standard ground ALS providers don't get. Um, and then looking at all this data, so they have a ton of records. So they're basically looking at this retrospective cohort study. So involving all of their electronic transport records and this time period, they tried to get a matching period pre-COVID and then during COVID. So they went from March, 2018 to December of 2019, and then they introduced a GlideScope. Um, it's the GlideScope, GlideScope Spectrum device, which has single use blades. And that was introduced in December of 2019. And then they captured a equivalent period. So all the way until September of 2021. And then of note is this nested COVID-19 period. So of course we know uh, major change happening in the world starting in March, but it took a couple of weeks for them to figure out um, how they were gonna change their operations and change their protocols. So starting on April 1st of 2020 is this COVID-19 period where it wasn't just business as usual, their protocols changed where instead of any paramedic intubating, it was the most experienced clinician was intubating. And then they only allowed one intubation attempt as opposed to two attempts pre-COVID. And they also required increased PPE. So these providers had to wear a gown, N95 mask, eye protection, and then gloves. I hope they'd always be wearing gloves. But the addition of the gown and the N95 is definitely uh, some extra PPE that they had during this nested period. So we were all interested in seeing how did this change their intubation success? 
I, I really appreciate, <clears throat> Jeff, the author's willingness to take this on. I, I think through if I was conducting a study and, and a pandemic hit while I was trying to do a pandemic where it's a virus in, in 2020 with very little information, lots of discussion around just canceling the trial altogether <clears throat> and just being like, we'll bring it back when we can. Really have to applaud the authors for being in the mindset that said, we're going to continue to collect the data. It's retrospective. So they sort of knew afterwards what was going on, but just the mindset to be like, we're actually going to look at this data and we actually care about this data enough that we're going to extrapolate for all of that COVID time. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. I also I wonder your thoughts on, I thought it was interesting. The authors noted that it was preferred that they had one attempt, but they haven't, they can deviate from their protocols if they have good reason to do so. I always appreciate a medical director that says, you know, you're in the, you're the one in the back of the ambulance, as long as you can defend your decision, we're okay with you making it. And I appreciate that sort of flexibility. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, very real world of them to say that since of course you can have protocols and they showed us all their protocols so great to see but we know that the real world definitely can't account for every um minutia of the protocols and providers that are out there in the field they have to get the job done so we know that in reality the protocols might not always be followed to the t so the authors recognize this that even though the protocol said you have to wear all this PPE and only do one attempt. We're not necessarily sure if that's exactly what happened, but we do know the intention. So I um, want to thank the authors for, again, being so transparent with all this um, and showing truly the reality of EMS that can't always predict exactly what's going to happen on the ground. Uh, I want to just jump in and say, uh, Jeff, when you were talking about the whole uh, during COVID here, they're, they're, uh, they, they note in their limitations, PSGs directed the most experienced and skilled paramedic to perform the intubation attempt. Uh, I just want to remind the audience that in the midst of doing real research with real, uh, real paramedics and, and real cases, uh, the most experienced paramedic was selected by the crew on the way to the call, meaning uh, it's not like, because uh, uh, we have seen studies where uh, uh, just a select group of the high performing paramedics who get lots of special training were the ones intubating. This is a on the way to the call who's got more experience. So it's not as um, uh, it, 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 to me, it's less of a limitation uh, in the methodology because it's really just two people looking at each other going, um, who wants to try it and, uh, or who has the bigger ego maybe and thinking of it, or I'm brand spanking new and I know for sure you're, you've got more experience, but, uh, it is, it is an interesting, uh, change during COVID and it, it, it sort of, uh, you know, could have caused a major skew in the, in the data. And I think, it's worth just highlighting that in the methods. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. So yeah, continuing along with the study setting and methods. So the interventions, of course, the main intervention that we're looking at is the introduction of the video laryngoscope. And this was a glidoscope video laryngoscope, which did have blades in multiple sizes. There are many different commercial brands and models. Some of them, for example, don't have pediatric size blades. This size, uh, um, this specific product did on the other hand. And then we talked a little bit about that training. So there was that classroom and hands-on training of about three hours and they did have a checkoff sheet. So theoretically ensuring that all their paramedics and nurses were confident in using this. There was ongoing quality assurance um, with all of these attempts. Um, and then finally, those um, guidelines were updated. So, so this included just simple intubation, as well as medication-assisted intubation, for example, ketamine-only or rapid sequence intubation. So including a paralytic as well. So these paramedics in the system were allowed to intubate under all these circumstances. And then looking at our study population. So their study population was simply 
all their patients who they encountered in that system. They didn't have any exclusions for pediatrics, which I think is great. So many of these studies we often see just arbitrarily only look at 18 plus. They don't look at pregnant people. They don't look at prisoners. They exclude all the peds. Whereas here, everyone was included, which I think was excellent to see the effect on all these different subgroups. And they included a ton of different variables, which we'll talk about a bit more in the tables later on. And then as far as the outcome measures, our primary outcome was simply successful endotracheal intubation after one attempt. And then a secondary outcome was um, getting that tube at all, regardless of whether it was on the first attempt or multiple attempts. And these... Sorry, finish up. Sorry, Jeff. Oh, and then I was just going to say that, that they also looked at glottis visualization, which we'll talk about more in the results, but that was also a key outcome. So the degree to which these paramedics and critical care nurses were able to actually visualize the glottis as part of their intubation. I, th I thought that was really key, Jeff, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's what I want. I, I, the, the documentation to actually document glottic opening <laughs> when you visualize the intubation. I think it'd be easy to look at success rate. That's an easy documentable field in your charting software, but to say we're going to require and we're going to train our, our paramedics that are intubating these patients to document what glottic opening they have. I think especially in the thick of it, especially if you're doing an RSI, to, to remember that and to be able to document it afterwards is huge. Um, and, and as we look at the outcomes, recognizing that glottic opening is going to be really interesting in the results of were you able to see the entire glottic opening, just partial glottic opening, or um, because I actually documented what part of, or what, you know, partial visualization or full visualization of the glottic opening. I, I find that really interesting. And when I started to read the methods, I was like, wow, these authors really dug into this data, trying to find everything they possibly could. And I think that's going to shed some light on some things. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. With that, let's dive into the results. And because they did such a good deep analysis, I started highlighting on my copy of the like the different results I wanted to share. And I would just continue to be impressed. Um, I stopped highlighting because I was like, every single thing in these tables has some significance, whether it's statistically significant or not. Um, it was just quite interesting. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Bill, great question in the chat. They did define an attempt. And I thought this was really interesting because there is a lot of discussion. And, and having just listened to the MS Lighthouse podcast, Jeff Jarvis talked about this. I go back to my NREMT um, old airway intubation skills sheets. Um, if you remember back before the out-of-hospital scenario, there was an airway mannequin you had to intubate, and their definition of an attempt was the laryngoscope blade crossing the teeth. Uh, they use a similar definition, and I was happy the meta-analysis that Dave shared earlier actually followed a similar definition. So um, nice when we're comparing oranges to oranges every time, uh, but I appreciate that they clearly defined that and picked that. So um, I think that's a good definition to square away from. So as Jeff uh, alluded to, we've got some very interesting results on this paper, and there's a lot of them. Um, so one, about 1,800 intubations were attempted in this study period. Um, ironically, each period was 649 days, so they, they said it's retrospective, so they set this, so this is very doable. In the um, first time period where they only had direct laryngoscopy, they had 895 um, intubations. And then in the VL time period, which included that nested COVID period, they had 893. So ironically, the exact same time period and a fairly similar number of intubations. Um, so you didn't see a ton more people being intubated. They just got this training. Sometimes you think, okay, we just got this training. We just got this new equipment. We're going to use it a ton more. Um, they describe this as about 1.3 three intubations per day. So I think if, if you think to your service, that gives you a little bit of relativity uh, to how often they were intubating their patients. It was noted there were 382. And again, that COVID nested period. So I was part of the VL study where they had that defined, you know, most experienced provider, the additional PPE. Um, they had 382 intubations in that time period. 
There's a whole ton of data in this table that I think is really important to look at. Um, as Jeff told us, they did break down for adult and pediatric, and while their pediatric intubation size isn't huge, I think it's worth noting that it's going to show up on all of our tables, and there are some very interesting findings here. Um, so this is table one, and it's patient or encounter characteristics of each attempted endotracheal intubation. So this is sort of an overall data picture of the study. They're going to give us a bit more information in table two and three about the first attempt success and the third attempt success. But overall, this is what we're looking at. Again, there are some pediatric patients in this population. I think that's really important to note that they are intubating pediatric patients um, and they showed up here. Very little difference in our, our patient population in terms of male versus female patients. They did stratify for things like weight, um, a couple things that were interesting here, they did stratify for medical versus trauma calls. Uh, and if you look at direct versus video laryngoscopy, they had many more medical intubations than traumatic intubation. That's pretty typical compared to the other research that's out there. Um, and then again, the glottic view of the patient is described here. Um, and in terms of the entire glottic or all structures, I think this is one of my biggest takeaways from this table, and that is, uh, when they were using direct laryngoscopy, they had entire glottic visualization about 56% of the time. That went up to 70 or to 80%, 79 and a half, 80% when they had video laryngoscopy. Now that is statistically significant. And just look at the numbers, it's an additional 210 patients, def, uh, very clinically relevant to what we're looking at here. So uh, the change from a video or from a digital, uh, gosh, from a direct to a video laryngoscopy made a big difference in whether they could see the cords, which is you know the first step of advancing the tubes past them is to see them. So I really thought that was an impressive finding here. Dave, what else? I'm, you know, whenever it's some, uh, when in a, in, in this kind of a study, you're trying, they're trying to compare, uh, you know, a device, uh, against another device and you really want to try and match up patient population. So if there's a, a, a skew in, you know, well, in the historical 2018 pile of direct laryngoscopy, uh, they had in this particular case, uh, by weight, the weight category of zero to 7.2 kilos. So we're talking about infants really uh, was 89 patients. So 9.9%. And I'd love to have the authors here to explain why uh, there was such a difference uh, between these uh, 89 in, in the pre-period and about 10 patients uh, in, the, in the VL category. So there's a there's a much lower number of very small you know infant uh, intubations in that category, and I don't know if that was a decision or if it was just patient population changed during COVID and there were fewer infants that needed to be intubated because of patterns of of care. Uh, other than that, though, when you look at you know the the weight distribution in particular, if that's a surrogate for a difficult intubation and particularly larger patients. So uh, kilos of uh, 82 to 113 and 113 to 204 were really very similar. And uh, that's, that's, I think, uh, you know, part of the story if VL is better and, and they're certainly leaning that way, right? The, uh, the the visualization the the um, uh, it's a it's a we we we're trying to really compare apples to apples. Then uh, it looks like really from the bigger patients we really have a very similar population, and you know the same for adult pediatric etc. Uh, I also noted uh, kind of an interesting change between more critical care clinicians were uh, intubating prior to COVID and fewer clinical like, crit critical care clinicians were intubating, which is back to the methods and back to uh, trying to pick the most experienced intubators. You would think that critical care paramedics would have more experience and more um, and be actually more dominant during COVID if that's what their direction was, but it's actually inverse. There's uh, uh, really 17.9% versus 8.8% uh, in the 
critical care versus straight up ALS. So that those were kind of numbers that jumped out as as uh, potentially could, could have affected the outcomes. And um, maybe there's a story there about infants, but uh, in the in the other sections, it sort of normalized. I think the the these data. Dave, I, I had a similar thought, and I thought to myself on the ALS versus critical care side. I wondered if the as the educator in me wondered if the training that was provided before they went to video empowered some of the non-critical care people, the ALS people to say, I have this new tool, I have this new training, it's fresh in my mind, and thus I'm going to be more confident in my intubation skills. Even though it was the most senior person uh, or the most experienced person, it did go up 10%. So I, I thought maybe, gosh, maybe we empowered some ALS providers to say, hey, you have a new tool, maybe an airway where you would have gone superglottic in the past, you're now more likely uh, to intubate the patient, go with that definitive airway. That was um, my, my thought on it. J Jeff, any thoughts? Sure. Yeah. A couple of thoughts. So first of all, as far as the pediatric population is concerned, something I forgot to mention in the setting and methods was that the pediatric blades weren't fully implemented when the VL laryngoscope was um, implemented. So all they had initially was a hyperangulated blade for the pediatric population. So kind of like a super curved Macintosh blade. And that's something that many of the providers may not have felt comfortable with. And then later on in June of 2021, so pretty late on in, they did introduce Miller Zero and Miller One blades for the pediatric population. And the authors talked about a bit in the discussion that they thought that their providers just simply didn't feel very comfortable having that hyperangulated blade only, which is something that wasn't really used at all. We just have our Mac and our Miller um, as far as our DL blades. So later on, apparently the intubations uh, increase for the pediatric population after they introduce these blades. So a bit of a change there in that study setting that happened kind of late on, which probably explains some of those differences as far as the pediatric population is concerned. And then as far as clinician type, I was thinking a lot about this and thinking about ALS. Most of these are probably 911 paramedics. And then critical care, I mean, they definitely do some scene transports, but a lot of these are probably interfacility transports. So taking patients from smaller community hospitals to bigger hospitals. And I was thinking that um, in the context of COVID, many of these patients are probably getting intubated right off the bat. So especially earlier stage of COVID, many patients were getting intubated very quickly at that earliest stage of respiratory distress or respiratory failure. So I was thinking that these critical care um, providers maybe just didn't have as much opportunity. They'd arrive on scene to a hospital and the patient's already been intubated. So perhaps they just didn't have as many opportunities to intubate because of this whole COVID pandemic and um, secular trends that are happening at the same exact time. So those are kind of my thoughts there. I think that's so important to remember, Jeff. And again, it's really, we're so happy not to be in the pandemic period that we have to take ourselves, our mindset back to that pandemic period. And you're exactly right. I mean, we were talking ventilator shortages. We were talking increase in patients, um, you know, signing the refusal, letting them stay on um, at home. So there was really a bit of a shift in, in our care provided. So you're exactly right. These Many of these interfacility transports may have found themselves intubated at the hospital and then were being transported to a higher level of care much different towards the outcome of the pandemic where we we're seeing a lot more things like CPAP and BiPAP. And um, uh, while we didn't extrapolate month over month for a number of attempts, I wondered if in the if we would have seen that because nationwide we saw an increase in intubations and ventilator use very early on the pandemic, which tend to wane um, off towards the end. So definitely something that's there. Let's dive into table two, because I think there's some more interesting things in here as we continue on that talk about the rate of successful endotracheal intubation. Now this is table two, and table two looks at first attempt. So first attempt uh, with a direct laryngoscopy and first attempt with video laryngoscopy, again, during those different time periods. So 
several big um, takeaways that were statistically significant here. If you look at the overall success rate, video laryngoscopy was statistically significant in terms of successful first-time placement. I think, again, the last table sort of hinted that they had better visualization. Certainly, we would hope that if you could see the glottic opening, you would be more successful at placing your tube on the first attempt. This um, table bared that out as well. Again, this pediatric patient population continues to come up. If, Again, you look at they had about 125 attempts direct laryngoscopy with about only 25 with video laryngoscopy. That makes that statistical significance. Um, while it is there, um, it is there in adults, it's not there in pediatric patients. Uh, some of that may be due to the numbers. And Jeff and I had an interesting conversation. I'll let him share some additional details. But um, just the fact that they're intubating that many pediatric patients um, it tells me that, again, we probably have a very forward-thinking educational program quality assurance program, but um, if, if you think to your agency, are they intubating 125 pediatric patients a year? Um, again, this is, must be a very, it has to have a very robust system to it. A couple other things that I thought were interesting in this table, again, they extrapolated for weight as well here, and then they broke it down on medical intubations versus traumatic intubations, uh, and again there, we did see an increase in statistical significance in our medical patients, Versus, uh, direct versus video. I think that's important. They didn't see this in trauma, um, which not statistically significant, though I was impressed with the number of traumatic injury intubations they're doing. While medical substantially out um, is, is more, there's still some traumatic intubations here um, and video wasn't found to be a success. So I think that's something I would dig into a little bit further. Um, sometimes we think traumatic intubation, that can be a lot of different things. I'd be very interested to know, we oftentimes think a difficult intubation would be a patient in a cervical collar, a difficult intubation would be a patient with facial trauma. Were these trauma victims in those categories or were they just simply, you know, falls, car accidents, things like that, where there wasn't a lot of change to the anatomy of the airway? I think there's an opportunity there for some continued investigation, or at least some more questions that I would ask, um, because I just like to ask a lot of questions. Uh, same thing here, as we look at glottic opening, um, while it was statistically more significant that they were successful in their intubation, we didn't see a statistical significance in first attempt pass rate based on visualization. So entire glottic opening, were they more or less successful on their intubation? They didn't find that here. Um, we saw a clinician type on the last chart as well. We see it here again on first attempt pass rate. And you see on the ALS side, they did see a statistically significant increase in intubation success with video for the ALS providers. I, again, I think this this is a fairly big increase, but also sort of hits home that perhaps we've empowered some people with some training and some technology that can improve it. We'll wait for the discussion to, to um, hear that out. They did not see a significant change in critical care. So again, as we look at overall success, direct versus video, we do see an overall more successful rate when we're using video versus when we're using direct laryngoscopy. Um, I did think, interestingly enough, again, we can we can compare COVID versus non-COVID. So this is your most experienced provider and wearing your N95 mask, your gown, your goggles, and your eye protection. They did not see a lot of statistical significance here. So which tells me EMS clinicians were just as confident um, and successful in their intubation skills when they were wearing the PPE with a video laryngoscopy device versus not. So their GlideScope and their PPE um, led them to be just as successful versus if they were just um, intubating the patient without all the PPE. So I did think that was important. There was a lot, if you remember back to early on in the pandemic, we were looking at putting sort of like intubation hoods or boxes over top of the airway to help maintain those air isolation procedures. Um, I think a lot of this probably goes into training with the devices and training with the PPE on. I'm sure there was some of that done that may have attributed to some of this success. Um, Dr. Toon, Dave, Jeff, any thoughts on first attempt success rate? Uh, DL versus VL on this table. Sorry about that. Looking at all these characteristics, um, it was definitely good to see that for weights, for example, you, you could see that comparing DL to VL, that um, pretty consistently as those weights increase, you would still see that trend of more success in the VL groups as compared to the DL group. 
I was a little bit surprised looking at the glottic view. I mean, these are pretty small numbers for little glottis, but I was kind of surprised to see that that non-COVID period at the beginning, um, that there appeared to be quite a bit less success in those patients who had very poor visualization of the glottis. And I was thinking, what could be going on? I mean, these are our more difficult airway type patients. And I was thinking maybe this could just be training. For example, we could see that that non-COVID period uh, versus COVID period, much higher rate of success, even though these are small numbers. So that significance isn't there. I was just thinking about what could possibly be going on since in the other subgroups, we saw sort of similar trends um, that I just thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if anyone had any other thoughts about some of these subgroup trends. Yeah, again, it's just this huge data breakdown sort of forces you to start looking into more opportunities. I always err on the side of like, oh, we did training, so we we improved it. I also wonder, again, we saw the number of, of entire glottic or all structures visual go up quite a bit with the, with the um, VL. So I wonder if we pulled some of those people who with direct laryngoscopy could only see part of the vocal cords or could only see part of the glottic opening with some manipulation of their video device, all of a sudden we pulled that population up. Um, so I think there's something there too. Uh, that was my, you know, initial jump down the, the rabbit hole of that conversation. So. I think you did a really good job of summarizing it. I, I, I'm always worried about how the, um, you know, the Hawthorne effect, you, you train people, you get them really spun up on a new technology. They're really got, a, they've got a lot of uh, eyes on them, uh, and, and everybody's, you know, super hyped up about it. Uh, it's more interesting to me to watch it sort of over time and see if this, uh, success will continue. Uh, and, and if, if the, if it's just, a uh, we saw a lot of emphasis, a lot of, a lot of training and a lot of, uh, visualization with this particular new device, and therefore we get a lot of success. So um, that's where the the meta analyses that's that's in the chat comes in, and I think uh, you do see a, a further improvement. I I also this there's so many variables, and it's so hard to do research when you have so many variables. It's it's the you know the weight of the patient the um, uh, whether the, there's there's guck in the airway, you got uh, whether you're going to have to suction or uh, uh, trauma versus medical, and whether the the standard of care is to uh, have manual stabilization or a cervical collar, and how uh, and where these intubations are occurring. So there's there's just so much variability that it, it it's hard to pin down this. There's this one magic thing if you just do this. Then all of a sudden everything improves, and uh, I also, you know, personally, we uh, at the ambulance service where I work have video laryngoscopy that's similar. It's not the same device, but it's similar in that you're looking at a screen that's kind of next to the patient, or if you, you know, put the device, the laptop in our case, on the patient's chest, which is hard to do in a cardiac arrest. You, you, are, you could just be looking at their chest, but not at the airway versus some of the devices that lead you to look more, you know, directly down into the airway and the 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 video laryngoscopy, the video portion is near the airway. These are uh, stylistic changes that for younger intubators may may actually be perfectly fine if they're gamers and they're used to uh, being able to look over there and do something over here. That might um, be better for some folks that learned it that way. This is a very nice study in that you're really taking a population of folks that were doing direct laryngoscopy, and now you're watching this introduction of this new technology. So um, I do think, um, you know, for those of us who uh, have been the old dog can't, you know, teach new tricks uh, and, and do new tricks, then we better be paying attention to how this uh, is evolving um, in a much more, um, you know, uh, in a deeper way. 
I I'm thinking that miniaturization and and leaps in technology, like what we just saw announced this week, uh, you know, uh, think what you will about Apple and and devices like Oculus or or uh, uh, video, but if if in fact these devices can now sense where our pupils are and you know fighter pilots can be uh looking at 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 you know enhanced targeting i think we can uh be be assured that our technology could have uh the ability to recognize vocal cords and or better discern where you know uh, where to uh, place the orange scope for a better uh, view and uh, and sort of some real-time decision assistance targeting kind of that's where you're going to go. This is the right spot. This is not the right spot. So I I I'm thinking that this is going to change rapidly as as the miniaturization and the improvement in some of these devices work. I was amazed too, uh, just as a side about video laryngoscopy. You know, there's as people use it and they get more used to it some uh, stupid, simple stuff uh, that I uh, personally, our, our, one of our educators brilliantly said, don't, don't try and wipe the blade. If it gets all dirty, just shake it. Uh, you know, actually just, uh, you can dip it in water and shake it and it, and it clears the view much better. And um, uh, these types of uh, learning about these technologies and, and in real, uh, real world, uh, circumstances being able to modify whether it's the the uh, Macintosh, uh, which is my favorite, or the the uh, the straight blades that that in some cases uh, remember there's a Wisconsin and a Miller, so it, it it some people don't even know the difference. I think we we tend to uh, learn one way in school and get stuck on one uh, topic or another. So that's I, I'm sort of curious about why Bill is so quiet because it is definitely a subject near and dear to our heart and and uh, we've done much work around this right Bill I, I'm I'm guessing it, 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 no I, I I I've been listening to the conversation because it's been very good I think that when I look at this yes we've done a lot but we've not done enough what I love is the beauty of this is all of the data they collected and my question in my mind. Are they continuing to collect it now? You know, have they stopped? Have they created this database and registry and then stopped collecting this data? Because as you said, longitudinally, this is it would be important. And this just brings up more questions for me than necessarily answers about video versus direct. Um, it brings up everything related to training. How, what's the effect of training to uh, performance, what is, you know, they have a fair number of paramedics, but they're still not, what, what's a high performing paramedic? How many intubations are they doing a year? Yeah, I know when, I know when we, when, when I was working in Kansas, we carefully studied this and we had three groups. We had, uh, if you averaged it out over all the paramedics, it was less than an intubation per year. Yeah. Um, but when we actually dug into the data, there was one third of the paramedics that were never even getting an attempt in one year. Yeah. yeah. And there was a there was a third that was getting one. And then there was this other third, which you may call the high performers that were getting more. So mm -hmm. um, and yeah. we answered the we answered the question about where the intubation took place the most. It took place on the floor. In a, in a residence, that's where intubations yeah, took yeah. place the most, you know, and it was funny because we only had one attempt over a 10 year period of time of collecting data when I was there that was attempted by a person was in a car. Yeah, yeah, the, the eternal training in the, in the, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, let's, Kylie... let's, let's train them on something that almost never happens, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> Kylie Dyson did a very nice job on a paper about intubation and cardiac arrest and how the more frequent uh, your your cardiac arrest, the, the better the outcome, but particularly better airway management intubation success. And I think it's worth mentioning here. I, I, I'm, I, we don't have a lot of statistics on how often these particular paramedics are intubating, but they, they, the, this ambulance service is using data from all their different operations, which is 
new. I, when I, We all can love and respect Roger White and the Mayo Clinic and all of the work they've done. It's un, in, uncontrovertible, the con contributions that they've made to, to EMS. So let's just, you know, pause and, and, and say that. It's also true that this, this, uh, this version of the Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service has operations that are in rural settings or suburban rural in, in the case of some of the, the uh, types of municipalities and some of the areas of coverage. So it's not just uh, the Mayo flight team that we're looking at. We're looking at a paramedic working with an EMT in an area that may or may not have uh, an intubation every month. So I, your point is absolutely on target, Bill, is like uh, very, there's, there's, there's all this discussion about, you know, the Florida statistics around, you know, train every single firefighter paramedic and every response engine to do advanced airway, and then watch the number of intubations go down per, per intubator. So, uh, so less uh, frequency, less success. Here, the, in this paper, really we're talking about a population uh, of paramedics who are, I believe, greatly benefiting from that cadaver airway experience. And, uh, and the education is critical and, and the uh, success rate definitely jumped up. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that we don't just have studies from urban, you know, high volume services that are saying, uh, you know, you better be doing this once, once a week. And I also would say uh, my favorite way to think about this is the way uh, cops think about using their weapon. I, I think the laryngoscope is a weapon. If used improperly, it can kill somebody. So if you're going to be qualified to do this particular procedure, you should have to maintain that qualification just the same as a police officer has to go to the range and say, yep, I can still shoot my gun and I can still get at the target uh, under realistic, uh, real world, real life situations where the mannequin is, like you said, built on the floor and we are not, not in a nicely lit room with a mannequin on the table that has their lungs exposed because all of our patients are hemisected and expose their lungs so we can verify this. I think um, you've got to have real world uh, conditions under those training uh, model models. And then maybe we can, you know, if we could get to those best standards of practice in education, compare if, if in fact the, uh, the, the, the success rate is all due to the uh, device or to the education that goes with it. Without Dr. Rant Crow, here, without, <laughs> uh, with, without us here, without Dr. Crow, uh, who's jet setting away this week to get the Eagles conference, it's my job to keep us on time. Uh, we've got a couple more very interesting tables that we want to dive into. Points all well taken, Dave, as you were talking about the inoculus glasses. I was thinking in a plane, if you get too low, it automatically voice prompts you to pull up. Oftentimes, that's what you have to do with your glide scope as well as like lift up. Uh, I was just thinking the device could start doing some voice prompts like pull up pull up um, the just with the amount of AI that's probably not something we will it's probably something we'll see in our lifetime so uh, the table three looks at the rates of successful endotracheal intubation after any attempt so the last table's first attempt this one is any attempt um, now, again, similar statistical significance in a few different patient populations. Um, again, in the adult patient population, direct for versus video, we saw a statistical significant increase. Um, same thing for overall success. It went up by about 10%. So statistically significant, but also probably has some clinical relevancy there. Um, again, we did look at pediatric, and while it wasn't statistically significant, again, I just the numbers of pediatric patients who are getting intubated in this study, um, in this service area, just impressive the system that has a design that's able to do that. Um, we looked at medical patients on the first attempt and we saw clinical or we saw statistical significance. Uh, we saw the same thing on the medical side within three attempts here as well. So I think again, looking at the statistical significance on medical patients, we saw an increase there. Um, ironically, on the third attempt, we did not see a huge significance when we looked at glottic views. So um, when we looked at, you know, within three attempts on or any attempt 
there was not a statistical significant improvement with video laryngoscopy. I think that's interesting. We did see it on the first attempt, which is probably what leads you to be successful on the first attempt, but um, no big statistical significance here. We did see a similar finding on the ALS side when it comes to clinician type. So we saw an improvement in a pass rate on any attempt with video laryngoscopy over direct laryngoscopy. And again, that went up about 12 percentage points uh, with the ALS provider. Same as the first attempt versus, uh, within any attempt, the critical care um, did not see a huge increase, but also much lower numbers compared to the ALS provider. So I think maybe some similar extrapolations here versus there. But I do think, again, we're recognizing that this video laryngoscopy had an impact on this services success rate. When we look at the overall survival rate in other studies, it's demonstrated the sooner you get the airway in place or whatever you're most successful on first is likely to improve your outcomes. When we look at things like cardiac arrest, being able to improve your intubation success on the first attempt um, certainly probably has some extenuating you know, benefits to it. Here within any attempt, we saw the same statistical significance that your patient was likely um, to be intubated with any attempt with the video. Um, I, I do think, again, we looked at pre-COVID versus COVID times or the COVID nested period for this study. Not a lot of statistical significance here, which meant that the most experienced provider wearing their PPE during COVID uh, had a similar success rate, whether it was wearing the PPE or not wearing the PPE. So uh, again, I think probably some great training and just getting comfortable wearing the PPE um, really important here. Table four also provides us some interesting insights. Table four is the association between mode of intubation and success of intubation on first attempt and after any attempt. So again, these are some odds ratios. So we're looking at what the odds are of intubating your patient um, first attempt versus any attempt. I think there's a couple big takeaways from this table that I think are important. When we look at the video laryngoscopy intubation rate, we see that intubating with video laryngoscopy um, puts you at, on the first attempt between about one and three quarters to three times more likely to be successful. I think that's important when we look at it um, within any attempt. Again, you're about one and a half to three times more likely to be successful with your intubation. They found that to be statistically significant. Uh, when they looked at VL versus DL, during the COVID VL period, they found similarly you were statistically more, more likely or uh, you had a higher odds, if you will, of getting your intubation on the first attempt and within any attempt. So again, the VL device is continuing to not only be more successful, but increase the odds as well. Um, a couple other things that I thought were interesting to pull away from here when they looked at clinician type, the critical care uh, provider with a video laryngoscopy, or I'm sorry, with the critical care person compared to the ALS person was three times more likely to be successful on the first attempt and more than three and a half times more likely to be successful on any attempt. Uh, so while we saw in the previous slides and the previous tables, the critical care person was getting less intubations, they were more significant both on the first attempt and on any attempt. So i um, not sure if there's a difference in training or credentialing process there, but something is causing a statistically significant um, increase by, again, a, a, between two and five times more likely on first attempt success. So uh, there's something there that I think is worth diving into that I think may, may provide for some secondary analysis. Uh, the last table that we got to look at, this was the association between mode of intubation and success of intubation, um, which looked at the glottic visualization. Uh, I think this is a really interesting table that provides us some insights into were they able to see the glottis um, that really broke down the glottic opening and were they able to see the entire glottis as a reference period. There was a lot of statistical significance here when comparing the entire glottis to any glottic opening. Again, what this tells me is the more you can see, the more likely you are to be successful. So getting a better visualization of the glottic opening is gonna lead to a higher success rate. 
Um, so to me, that seems like oh, maybe that's common sense, but I think it's worth sharing and worth continuing to say the better visualization you have of the glottic opening, the more likely you are to be successful on both the first attempt and any other attempt. So um, I thought that was worth sharing. They didn't see a lot of other statistical significance when comparing the success of intubation versus glottic um, visualization. So um, again, if you can see it, uh, you can intubate it, I suppose, is maybe a way to say it. Uh, I want to open it up to our panelists for any final thoughts on this study and what it may lead to for the uh, you know significance of the study. We'll start with Jeff or uh, Dave's on. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, mine is just brief, which is please look at the airway compendium. Please look at these meta-analyses. I think uh, anyone who says there's just no research in, in EMS is just not tuned in these days. I, we we are seeing some great work. And uh, before deciding to uh, do a switch or uh, improve your intubation uh, technique, and I think measuring this, uh, if I can put a plug in for, we have a deadline for research uh, this month, this month. So send us your uh, your research for, uh, the, in, in, in this year, we'll be able to present it both at EMS World uh, Expo in New Orleans in September, September 18 to 22, and also at NAMSP. Uh, so they can they can jointly be presented if they're submitted also to NAMSP. Uh, they're going to be published in PEC. It's it's uh, the 30th is the deadline. But also in four days, we close uh, our, our opportunity to participate in the ESO workshop that will uh, occur in Austin, also in the fall, just before this uh, EMS world. So, uh, so big deadline. But if you are going to do a change and 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 you are going to implement some new technique, particularly in airway management, please measure it, track it, and then publish it. Uh, uh, take the time to actually, you know, share it in a peer-reviewed journal so that we can all learn from it. So that's my plug. Is there's a lot of stuff out there. Please read before you leap, and when you leap, please measure it and then submit it to us. Jeff, any final thoughts? And then we'll go to Bill. Sure. Just wanted to thank the authors again for sharing everything, sharing all their data, sharing these results, and really being so transparent with everything, including their guidelines that they implemented. And I think even though they sh share a lot of really interesting results, there's also many questions that come out. For example, the pediatric population, why we saw you know some of that reduced success and then why such big gaps between ALS clinicians and critical care clinicians. So that just begs the question of, we need to do research. We need to figure out what it is exactly. For example, with these critical care clinicians, their training is a bit different, but is it just that OR time is being in the operating room? What is uh, able to get these critical care clinicians to, to practice at that higher level, or is it something else? So hoping that maybe we could see some abstracts on that in a few days. So just wanted to thank the authors again for their terrific work. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thanks for investigating the methods so uh, so intensely. There was a lot in there. Dr. Toon, any final thoughts? Yes, uh, just a couple of things. But the beauty of this, I said, is, is all the data they collected. And I encourage EMS agencies that if you, before you institute a change, know what you're doing now and work out on how to collect the data, how to make sure that you're getting the information that you want. So then you can make your changes based upon objective information, which I think is very important to do. And I do wanna thank the authors. I think they did an excellent job. And I wanna propose one change in our overall thought process. And I think we've overused, and I think it's time to put it to bed. If you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. It, it's being overused. EMS systems are very, very similar. They do a lot of the same basic things. So I don't think they're necessarily, if you've seen one, you've only seen one. Um, and I think it's time to change. It's no different, I think, than when everyone says pediatric patients are not adults. No, they are not adults, but almost everything that you can do and assess on an adult patient is applicable to a pediatric patient. Let's not put in this 
false wall of things that only, you know, you've seen one EMS system, you've only seen one EMS system. So it, it's time for us to look at a mindset change on many things as it relates to that. But we need to collect data, we need to measure, and so we can make changes and move forward. And with that, thank you very much to our panelists. I'm thrilled to be turning over the hosting duties for next month back to the esteemed Dr. Emily Crow. Uh, when we will be joining you again in the second Monday of the month, that would be July 10th for our next journal club. And our educational research podcast will be June 23rd. We look forward to seeing you then. And again, thank you so much for joining us for the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum monthly clinical research podcast. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.